Elliot Everett, one of the assistant pastors here. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning to open God's word with you. I do want to apologize as I throw you one curveball. Uh, I sent one in thing for one thing in for the bulletin, and then I went another direction. So we're not going to be in the Gospel of Mark this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter two, but we're going to be going with the same theme that hopefully the the title implied back to the beginning. What would it be like to go back to the beginning? the story of salvation. January, it's a time of beginnings, and some of us like to make resolutions, some some of us just ignore that practice, but in a sense, right, every January is in a sense a new beginning. It can be a new beginning in any area of our lives, not necessarily of starting over, but of continued growth. Uh, of, of resolving, of, 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 re, uh, of, of rededicating ourselves to, to certain areas in our lives of, of growth. And so I think back for what most likely was uh, the group, the, the nation of Israel traveling towards the promised land, getting from Moses the full story of their salvation from Egypt. What must it have been like to go back to the beginning of that story? And we see that story begin to take shape as we read Exodus 2. So if you'll follow along, I'll read this chapter. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call to you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and drew, even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. If you remember some four, uh, almost five years ago now, uh, the summer of 2018, uh, a, a coach and his players, his young soccer players, uh, traveled into a cave in Thailand, not knowing that the time of year was not good for that. And the rains came and flooded the cave and they were trapped. And they were trapped for some two weeks and, and people around the world followed the story. And what was amazing about the story is hundreds of people from around the world flocked to the base of this mountain to put on the rescue effort that would eventually save uh, this coach uh, and the young boys. And you have to think of the relief that they felt as they emerged from the cave, finally rescued. But I can only imagine, I guess now, I think they've made it into a Netflix movie. Now for any of them to go back and watch all that went into their rescue, not only as hundreds gathered at the base of a mountain to plan a very precise rescue operation, but as millions of people around the world waited with bated breath to see what would come of their rescue. We all love a good story of deliverance. We all love to maybe even recount stories of deliverance what would it be like to go back to the beginning to see that story take shape and what could it tell us? I think we can see that in this chapter at the beginning of Exodus this morning. So I want to look at three things about deliverance. And the first thing you see here in chapter two of the story of the Exodus is that deliverance comes even when we can't see it. It's kind of obvious from the story. We're the reader. We kind of know the big picture. But this story is taking shape. And the people on the ground of the story had no idea. No idea all these detail, details that were coming uh, together. Uh, we actually know from the New Testament that Moses was 40 when, uh, when he flees to the wilderness in this chapter. And then we know that he's there for 40 years. So he's around 80 years old when he comes back to be the deliverer of God's people. So you're talking about 80 years that God is crafting this beautiful story of deliverance. But it's also 80 more years where the people of Israel are living in and born in and dying in slavery. It was a dark chapter of the story for them with seemingly no end in sight. But again, as we see it as the reader, the, the story is radically changing as we hear of two Levites that marry and they have a son, a loving mother that protects her son, a watching sister that follows, a bathing princess that rescues. It's almost like a fairy tale, right? All these insignificant details, but they're nothing short of miraculous. And, and you look at the context of the story from chapter one, Pharaoh had determined to destroy this people, yet they are multiplying more and more. He had, had planned this genocide of, uh, young, uh, of young children, but preserving the daughters. And we see daughters are the heroes of the story that turn the story on its house and then uh, on its head. And then we see from that same royal house that decreed death, that royal house becomes the instrument of life as that is where the deliverer grows up. 
But again, for the people on the ground of this story, for them, seemingly, God is silent. Is he even there? But in all of it, we see that he's there, his secret and ceaseless care for his people. We call this his, his providence, that no detail is insignificant. There's a marriage, a birth, a bath, all of it working God's purposes together for the salvation that he would bring. And so what we as the reader get to say and see, and then I imagine as, as the people that later on in generations after would come back and go back to the beginning of this story, what they would have seen was that the continuing darkness that was encountered in this story was only part of the story. It was never the defining part of the story. It was only part of it. There was another story all along going on. A long time ago, I heard a quote in a different context, but, but I've, I've latched onto it. I've always remembered it, that narrative fuels lifestyle. That the story or stories that we are living and believing about life and the world and ourselves, that, that is what fuels how uh, we live. We're living these stories that we're believing. And so the question for all of us, constantly, in a, in a new beginning, a new year is a good time to ask this. What story are we believing about life, about the world, about ourselves? How is that shaping us? How is it driving us? How is it, how is it defining things for us? I don't know about you, but I think for me and, and for most of us, usually the stories that are driving us are the ones that are right here in front of our face. The ones that we can see and taste and feel. Those usually tend to be the most defining stories. But again, when we look at this big story taking shape, we see that usually the things right in front of us are never the defining story. Some of us, some of you, you've spent your life kind of being open. You know, you've got that kind of personality. You're just open to letting the story go wherever. For others of you, that makes you nervous. Uh, you like to be in control of your story. You like to kind of control the trajectory of things. Regardless of where we find ourselves on that spectrum, our stories are evident in the way that we live. What makes you optimistic? What makes you pe pessimistic? What are the things that make you happy? What are the things that make you despair? These are the things that you are believing about life and about the world and about yourself. And in this chapter, at least, what we see, at least in this chapter, God makes no attempt here to explain the long, dark night to his people. But he is at work in it. And he is continuing to work his loving and caring providence all the way through. So deliverance comes when we go back to the beginning, what we should see is that deliverance comes even when we can't see exactly what is going on. The second thing that we see here is that, especially in the life of Moses here at the outset, is that deliverance comes even in the midst of sin and failure. Deliverance comes even in the midst of sin and failure. Not only is God working all the details of the story, he doesn't stop working when we screw it up which we have a penchant of doing, right? And you look at Moses' story, you really couldn't have made his story up any better. He grows up in the palace. He knows that he's a Hebrew, but he's got all the resources to be this great deliverer. And you can almost sense that he sees that and he feels that. Stephen, 
in his sermon before he's martyred in Acts chapter 7, says that Moses thought this moment divinely appointed. This is the moment that God has, has prepared me for to rise up and deliver his people. And he does it by killing an Egyptian. And I don't know about you, but I think if we're honest, we're, we're kind of cheering this part of the story. Moses kind of emerges from the palace as like the Hebrew Clark Kent. He's going to kind of shed the Egyptian clothes and he's going to have the Hebrew Superman clothes on. But even the way the story reads, it shows us pretty clearly that Moses knew that he was in the wrong. He looks this way and that, and he ends up fleeing for his life. And, and so where the story goes at this point is that the prince of Egypt becomes a redneck Midianite shepherd. I say it like that because the end of Genesis, when Jacob takes his family, Jacob and his sons were all shepherds and they go to Egypt during the famine, we're told explicitly at the end of Genesis, Egyptians hated shepherds. Prince of Egypt to a shepherd. That's where his life has gone. This, before we move on, I want you to think about this from Moses' perspective at this moment. By taking the law into his own hands, Moses has single-handedly delayed Israel's deliverance by 40 years. This mistake, it is a mistake, delays Israel's deliverance for 40 years. Yet... In that 40 years, in exile, we still see God at work in Moses' life, caring for him, loving for him, loving him, and providing for him. And in the midst of his failure, what, do we, what does Moses find? He finds safety, he finds a home, he finds a family. God is still with him. Again, Moses emerged from the palace in some sense thinking he was going to single-handedly overthrow an entire empire. You fast forward to Numbers 12, and we have God calling Moses the meekest man in all the earth. It's quite a change, right? What happens? Well, I think we begin to see it happen here in the wilderness of his own individual exile. In the wilderness, we see the man that God is making Moses into. Because God had no intention of raising up a brash, muscular, kill a man with his own bare hands type of deliverer. That was not the deliverer that God was going to call to save his people. God was going to have to first bring Moses to the end of himself. And we see that beginning even here in chapter 2, we see it in verse 22, in what he names his son. We get this detail that he has a son, and he names him Gershom. And the reason he names him Gershom, it means for I have been a sojourner or a stranger. I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now, there's something you fast forward to Hebrews chapter 11. We have this great catalog of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews gives us. And one of the things he says about Moses there and all the heroes of the faith, he says this in Hebrews 11, verse 39. He says, these all died in the faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They saw the promises of God. They believed them in faith, but they never, they never received them fully. We've received them fully in Jesus. But they greeted them from afar, acknowledging that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's where we see Moses here in his exile. He has acknowledged that he is but an exile passing through this life. 
So what we're told about those heroes of the faith, what we're seeing in Moses here, is that they all looked at their lives and they realized that they were being brought through something to something much greater. That the details of their lives, the seeming twists and turns of their stories was not God being absent, but God bringing them through something to something much greater. It's worth considering this morning. What do you think it is that is the biggest barrier for you to believe that God is working in your life right now? To believe that he is in your life right now? To believe that he can and he will do whatever it is that he wills in your life? What are things that you look at and you say, there was no way God was in that? Or what are the things that you think, well, God must have been in that? What are, what are the things that naturally lead you one way or the other? It's easy to see or, or believe or acknowledge God when we are surrounded by the blessings of friendship and family. Do you believe that God's still there when you're lonely or afraid? Do you believe God's still there when you've found yourself sinning against someone and feeling like there's no possibility of forgiveness? Is, do you see that God is still there when perhaps someone has hurt you and you can't forget it? There's certain times where it feels easy to believe God is there. There's other times where we wonder, is he even at all a part of that? If Exodus is the pattern of, of, of the story of salvation, even our story, and when we go back to the beginning of it, when we try to see the big picture, then what we're being told is that God never stops working. He will never stop working. He has never stopped working. Even if and when we have tried to directly go against it, he's at work. Deliverance comes when we can't see it. Deliverance comes even in the midst of our sin and failure. The last thing I want to see here comes at the end of the chapter is that deliverance comes truly when we cry out to God. That's where the Israelites go here. And I think I, verse, verses 23 and 25, they're amazing. I, I love going back to these verses. And as this chapter builds and then, and then ends with these verses, verses 23 and 25, again, we see the drama of the story that builds all the tiny details, the Levites marrying, having a son. He's raised under unique circumstances in the halls of royalty. He commits murder and is exiled. And then he marries and he has a son. But again, it's worth remembering all the while, the Hebrew people are still in slavery. They're still suffering. And I have to believe most of them thought daily, where is God in any of this? And we're told, when we go back to the beginning to get the big picture, we're told there in verse 24, where was God in the story? He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. That's where he is. It tells us at least two things. First, what we see there in verses 23 through 25, 
Deliverance comes specifically, we're told, when we cry out from slavery. Most all the commentators note this, that it's not just that they cried out. It's not just that their cry goes out to God, but it's repeated. They cry out because of their slavery. And their cry to God from slavery is what goes to him. That's what he hears. And so here's where we see the beginning of the deliverance of God's people, at least the beginning of the story entering into their story is when their cry becomes a prayer. When they're crying out becomes a prayer. It's the beginning of their deliverance in time and space, at least, because what it does is it brings God into their situation. It brings him into the equation in their minds, in their hearts. It's their acknowledgement in the moment that the story, no matter how confusing or dark it may be, belongs to God. And so they cry out to him as they acknowledge this. Deliverance comes when you cry out for rescue from slavery. The second thing is what it shows us is that deliverance comes from a God who knows. Again, what a powerful way to end the beginning of this story. Knowing in the Bible, that word in the Old Testament is far beyond just a comprehension of facts. We read that you know, Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore a son. This knowing, it's an action. It's an intentional entering into intimate relationship with. It will involve a coming down to, which is precisely what God is going to say in chapter 3. In chapter 3, he's going to say, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry, and I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. So this is what, what I want you to see. What I mean when I say that their prayer is what brought God into the story. Because we know God was working. We see the big picture. He's at work long before they cry out. So what does it mean that their prayer, their cry brought God into their story? He was at, he was at work long before they cried out. He was, at, he was the one, we saw it, that preserves Moses his whole life and brings him up in the palace and then brings him back from exile. But you go back before that, he's the one who told Jacob to take all his sons to Egypt. Before that, he's the one who worked the evil of Joseph's brothers into good by arranging for Joseph to become the second in command in Egypt. But even before that, he's the one that chose Jacob over Esau for the blessing in the womb of their mother. Before that, he's the one who promised elderly, childless Abraham a son. Before that, he's the one that preserved Noah and the family in the flood. He's the one who gave Eve another son after her son Abel is murdered. He's the one who gave animal skins to Adam and Eve at the fall. He's the one that before that said, let us make man in our image. The beginning of the world. He's been at work the whole time. From the very beginning itself, he's the one that knew and ordained each and every one of those details before time existed because he's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one for whom, through whom, to whom are all things. And he's the one, here it is, he's the one who delights in us so much that he comes down and enters in with us in time and space in a way that we can comprehend, in a way that we can know. 
He cares so much for us that he condescends to make his eternal, sovereign, providential work something that we can see and feel, even. He condescends to us by entering our story. So again, I ask you, why, you look at chapter 2, he's been at work the whole time. But as the story reads in chapter 2, why does God come down? Because they asked him to. They asked him to. And so he does. The infinite, eternal, omnipotent God comes down into their story because they asked him to. And so what we get to see right here in Exodus chapter 2 is God showing forth what he was going to do to relieve his people's suffering on a cosmic scale. When he would enter into history, the world itself, in time, in space, in the flesh, his own son, Jesus Christ. And he wouldn't just come down, but he would suffer with and for us. St. Augustine, he summed that story up when he looked at it, when he looked at the big picture, to go back to the beginning, he summed it up as this. He said, how you have loved me, O Father, who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us. Father, your son became both victor and victim for us. He became priest and sacrifice for us. Out of slaves, he made us sons, because though he was a son, he became a slave and served us instead of himself. Rightly, my hope is fixed upon him, and he will heal all the diseases of my soul. We read that and you think, wouldn't that be a great story? Sometimes it's worth going back to the beginning itself to say it is a great story and it's true. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would tell us again and again and again the great story of the love with which you have loved us, that you have poured even into our hearts. Would you build us up? Would you renew us even now? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.